You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. I just got out of a meeting with one of my consulting clients and they were making a leadership decision that was clearly wrong. Like I said, oh, so you know, what are you guys doing here? And they said, oh, we're, we're adamant that we want to do, you know, option B, right? And option A was the obvious, clear, best thing to do. And so I said, okay. I said, so you said adamant. And yet to me, the obvious answer is, a, I think what you might want to do is explore why you're so adamant on the suboptimal choice. That's a loaded <laughs> single mouse you gave. Well, the the it wasn't even it wasn't even ob, you know give debatable. Me, me a was example. clearly a a takes them to heaven, B takes them to hell. It was just okay, that. It was that. like, it was like that. Right. All right. And I was like, huh? So you're adamant though. Like, why are you adamant? And I, and I, I usually don't make my opinions as, as clear that they were making the suboptimal choice, but they were. Mm-hmm. And so I said, I said, what the issue is, is why are you so adamant about this decision? Because they use that word. And I said it would be important to explore the reason why. I guess it could kind of be like somebody who's received the advice, hey, you need to uh, stop smoking. I ain't stopping. Right. It was like I'm that. I'm going to keep smoking and you can't make me. It was well, that. A lot. Of, yeah, I guess the, the curiosity about our own strongly held beliefs is the first step in self-awareness. And when we're um, avoiding something or we're adamant about something, the curiosity behind it and figuring out at least why do I feel this way so strongly? That's really important. Today, we're going to talk to someone who knows all about beliefs and all about mindset. Emily Sanders, you might remember her from episode 50, deciding to talk about your problems. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist of over 13 years who helps people make sense of self and relationships. She has special focuses on perfectionism, relationship troubles, leadership, health, and burnout. In addition to her psychotherapy practice, Emily's an adjunct professor in the human development and psychology department at Life Pacific College in California. We talked a lot more about money this time with Emily, and she has some really good insights from a different professional angle than what Sean and I have as financial advisors. So stick around. You'll learn a lot. Uh, You'll laugh a little bit. You'll hear some good stories. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Emily, I'm so excited to have you here. This is like a pseudo therapy session for Sean and I to challenge our own beliefs. So, oh, good. Always good. Excited Get ready to, to be you. therapized. Thank yeah, it was, it was it's really just a therapist. Yeah, it was a ruse last time just to get a psychotherapist on the show so we could actually have an intervention for Sanger. So it's uh, oh, nice. good to have you back under a, you know, a you. not false pretenses. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> actually, I was, I was thinking about you the other day is that all of the, my industry in financial advice 
has really changed over the last 30 years, 35 years or so from a information, which is now sort of a, abundant and cheap to mm-hmm. wisdom, which is, you know, kind of rare and more invaluable looking at going from, okay, I'm going to help you pick a stock or mutual fund or to things like that into how do you make good decisions with wealth to bring it to its highest purpose? And so it's, it's sort of moving in a way where we deal with behavioral finance more and more. I'm uh-huh. wondering if in your field, you're seeing a change like that in psychotherapy over the, over the years as you've worked at it. Sure. I mean, in general, white, right. We are taught to pay attention to emotion and behavior and whatnot, but I'm not surprised that you're seeing a shift in your industry because there is so much emotion in money so much emotion and money. And I'm sure that you often will bump up against individuals who've been explained a very sound decision and are still resistant to it. So um, helping to work with people's emotion to make sound financial decisions is really important. I realized there was a limit for me, though. I <laughs> Years ago, I went and I studied and got this designation. It was a, it was called a certified divorce planning designation. It was to sure. deal with people who are going through d- divorce, obviously, and looking at how do you create an equitable separation of assets and future income and those types of things. It was really valuable, and I, I enjoyed the work of it until I started meeting with clients. <laughs> I enjoyed the <laughs> academic work of it, but not the not the sure. live work of it. Because I got into the meetings and realized that they were emotionally charged, that uh-huh. people would come in and say, oh, this is going to be amicable and, you know, we agree on everything. We just want to get a, you know, a third party opinion on it, you know, from a financial advisor point of view. And I'd start and everything was fine until I would start asking questions that would reveal sort of underlying concerns or dishonesty perhaps on people's accounts on revealing their finances to their partner. Uh-huh. And it really got to a point where I realized I I have a line where I want to get into somebody's sort of psychotherapy role and, and I don't want to cross that line. Right? Uh, do you find that you get in your role dealing as a psychotherapist that people start talking about money and you realize, oh, no, wait, I, don't, I don't want to talk about your money. <laughs> I want to oh, well, stay on the other side. Sure. I mean, I love talking about money. It's just another avenue, just like sex or parenting choices that helps me get to see a different layer of the person that I'm working with, right? And in in terms of how much I talk about money, I'm not talking with them about how to invest. We're not necessarily sure, talking sure. about financial literacy, right? I want to help redirect them to somebody like yourself. Um, but there is a lot of emotion in money. And there's a lot of trauma wrapped up with money, um, even in discussing my fee with clients, right? There, there is a lot of, of money talk and there are a lot of clinicians who do shy away from it. They're scared because it's a sensitive subject, but it's such an important subject. So to know how to approach it well, honestly and directly, but with compassion is really important. What are the outcomes that your clients are looking for when they come to hire you? I mean, how, how would you, I'm sure there's not one specific common outcome that they all want, but how do you, how would you characterize it to someone that is not familiar with what you do day in and day out? 
Sure. I mean, well, so I'm a psychotherapist. So I have some people that come to me because they have a mental health crisis, right? There are symptoms that in need to be mitigated, right? Anxiety, depression, psychosis, whatever it may be. And then I also have individuals that come to me because they are aware that um, the way that they're operating, their relationships aren't going the way they want, or they have family trauma, or um, some people come because they want to know themselves more deeply and they want to grow professionally. So there's such a spectrum, but if I were to be black and white, we have one camp that really is trying to address pervasive mental health symptoms. And then the other camp, they're doing personal growth, uh, exploration, breaking certain patterns, whatever. Okay. So people who are, it sounds like, and please tell me if I'm wrong, people who have a very specific problem area, maybe problem's not the right word, but a, a very specific thing that they're looking to get help for. And other people who are saying, hey, I I don't have necessarily something I'm trying to rid myself of, but it's something that I'm trying to uh, grow in and, and improve on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that's fair. Most people do have a precipitating event, right? Like maybe, okay, I just had a devastating breakup and that's the thing that brings them in, but then the door's open to all different kinds of work. So. Yeah. So it's, it's probably a lot like our business sector. You know, we, we had this discussion a while back where we were talking about the rate of success that you saw with a client over a long period of time. And, I, and I'd made the comment, you know, all the clients I work with seem to be doing really well, but there's this concept of self-selection. In other words, I'm only working with people who've gotten to a place mentally where they want to seek help. They want uh, the help uh-huh. of a financial advisor. Those tend to, those people tend to, it's no surprise, do better financially. And, mm-hmm. and I would think that in your business, you're seeing only the people that are seeking out help, only the people that want to explore what's going on and how to get better. Those are people coming with you, coming to you, right? So you're able to help them. How about the well, people? Yeah, you, you, you would be surprised though, honestly, Sean, at how many people say they want to be better or say that they want things to be different. They like the idea of things being different, but are still very resistant to making changes. Um, and I can usually tell when we're in my first meeting with somebody roughly how long they will stick with therapy. Oh, what tells <laughs> you that? Um, what signs are they, are you saying? Personally, how curious they are about themselves. Um, how much of a victim they are. Uh, and I want to say that very tenderly, but but how much helplessness they have um, surrounding them. Sure. Not victim, um, but victim yeah. mentality then. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So th- those are some of the real big ones. When I have people that sit down and say, well, this is wrong, so tell me what to fix. You know, when anybody's too much in a rush where they just want things to be better because they came to therapy twice, um, there's a vibe that they put off. So how often do people come and they go, all right, well, um, fix my spouse. I'll pay, I'll pay for your, your big, I'll pay for your big package, you know, your 50 meeting package or whatever. And they just think like the amount of money they spend then, and the amount of commitment that they made, Hey, I wrote it, I wrote the check and I, I made the appointment, so I should be good. And then you're like, there's there's some work you got to do. Like, I can't. It's not a magic wand just because you decided to do it. You're going to be fixed. Sure. Yeah. Um, when 
when people come and they have that mindset that you know right away, oh, this is not going to work for them. Is there any, is there anything other than a self-revelation that can bring them out of that and change their mindset? Because in a different way, I deal with the same thing as a professional is people come and I can tell uh, they're way too focused on returns, for example, or well, they're re- they really can't, they don't want to talk about anything beyond investment strategy. They don't want to talk about what their money is actually going to do for them in their life. Or specific they dis- stock. They dismiss all of that and they come right back to the growth, the growth, the growth, the stocks. And and uh, they miss the big picture. And I really, I do struggle and, and I struggle to break them out of it. And a lot of times I have to say, hey, I don't think I can really work with them or I just know that it's going to well, be then- a temporary relationship. And sure. I haven't found any way to break them out if they're hard and and they've really set themselves into that belief system. Um, uh-huh. But I don't want to give up yet. I want to, I want to believe that there's hope for those people. Like, so is there anything for those clients that you have that you can say, Hey, you know, I can throw them a lifeline here. Sure. I think what's so painful is we can't make anybody see what they're not ready to see. Right. So if I have somebody who I can tell this probably is not going to be a very long relationship, I think what kind of warmth or what can I offer them that maybe in a year, two, three or four, they'll look back and now have a reference point or say, oh, that's what, you know, Emily was getting at. And every now and then I will have people who circle back and say, I wasn't ready to see X, Y or Z yet. And so they return to therapy. And I love that. That's beautiful. Um, but as a clinician, I have to make peace with knowing that um, it is not my responsibility to change anybody. My responsibility is to give them an environment where they can grow and thrive yeah. and be challenged safely and that they can change if they want to. And that if they decide to reject or whatnot, then they're allowed to do that. And so I don't take that on as my burden. Uh, that that makes sense to me. I remember talking to my yeah. grandmother, who's uh, who was a counselor for many years, and I was kind of complaining about a call that I had had earlier that day. Oh, this client, all she ever wants to do is talk about the return. She can't see the bigger picture. She don't want to dig deeper. Da, da, da. Ah, I was like, I just had the worst call, and she was like, Well, that like she's getting something. You are providing something. Because uh-huh. I was mad. I was like, I'm providing no value to her. She goes, well, she's not stupid. Like, she's not going to keep paying you to provide no value. You're providing something. It just made up uh-huh. what you think you provide. Those reassurances were the value. Yeah, were uh-huh. the value. Uh, you know, I always have this, the big question of how, how does somebody who is not at a point of self-awareness arrive at that point so that they know to either seek help or you know from a professional or to seek help in some other form but if you're not aware of what your issues are how do you become more aware well usually something has to go really wrong yeah and and that's why oftentimes when people do come to therapy there is some sort of precipitating event right we right. have this concept of people needing to hit rock bottom to sometimes wake them up. So oftentimes it is something painful, usually a loss or, you know, the consequences of a poor decision that may hopefully uh, wake somebody up. 
So it'd be lovely if everybody could just be awoken by a moment of inspiration. And sometimes that happens. But more often than not, it's pain that is a catalyst for change. You know, I, I was thinking about this the other day is that, that a lot of times when you get those catalysts that will cause you to go through a journey of self-exploration, a lot of times we go back to how we gained our relationship with money, for example, in childhood. Well, this is how I saw my parents deal with money or this is, you know, what happened when I was a young child. We carry those forward and and that's that's been pretty well explored. But okay. I started wondering, you know, as as adults, you know, and I'm I'm almost 60. So I've spent way more time in workforce and employment and in my career than I did as a as a kid in my parents' house, right? Uh-huh. It would seem like that the impact of my career life, my professional life, would have way more impact on how I view things and how I uh, respond than what happened for, you know, 16, 17 years when I was a kid would have. Sure. But the foundation, oh, the foundation, unfortunately, it it's... Um, it has a really big impact. It's it's so much harder to unlearn and then to relearn this than just to have a lesson, you know, with no context. And when it comes to money, too, financial trauma uh, is significant. It's often very significant. Um, what does financial tra- fin- what does financial trauma look like? Sure, we can have things like sudden financial loss, right? Like, let's <laughs> say someone's parent loses their job and all of a sudden now it's there's this trickle down effect right losing the home having to move so on and so forth generational poverty chronic debt um having a lack of resources identity theft financial abuse when you have an abusive parent often there are pieces of financial abuse toxic family patterns regarding money um discrimination based on finances. There are a lot of really powerful moments around money that can be very, very jarring. And then, of course, we can have little little moments around money that shape our perception of it, right? Um, you know, feeling embarrassment with mother in a grocery store line, pulling out her, um, you know, food coupons or having to um, wait in line for, you know, the poor kids to get their free textbook or, you know, having to try to find clothing at secondhand stores to try to look current and clean enough, right? We have all yeah. these little moments too that really make a very big impact. So how do you deal with that financial trauma that comes from childhood? I mean, I can't I can't change what those things are. They, they there, there's no investment strategy. There's no budgeting tool either. It is a it's a very much a mental thing. Right. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I think for it's surprising to me how often people have these pivotal moments around money that are so charged with pain or shame and yet still don't connect that the way that they're behaving um, as an adult has any connection to that or that having trauma around money is an actual thing. Oh, people don't, um, people don't see it. Is that what you're saying? You're saying, hey, you, you know, you're, you're, you know, being stingy with your daughter because your dad uh-huh. was stingy with you or something like that. Is that what, you, and they don't sure. see that? Or, 
even just to say, what was it like for you to have to wait in line for the secondhand books when all of the other classmates just went and purchased, you know, their book and to see somebody just like well up with tears and and start to cry and say, you know, I've never I don't know. It was so shameful. And then all of a sudden now we're going down this whole string of moments that were filled with shame or lack and and to have somebody realize, wow, this this is still impacting me and the way that I'm behaving as an adult is really powerful. Um, you know, now we see adults who have scarcity mindsets or they're hoarding or they're a workaholic or there's compulsive overspending or underspending. There's a lot of behaviors um, around money that do reveal points of trauma. You know, I, I probably had that experience growing up is is that there was probably a scarcity mindset. I, I think there was money, yeah. but there was oh, a, certainly a really the people calling you cheap. Oh, it, it, yeah. well, because it cuts to the core. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. Because there's a there is a reason why that I, I like, I'd prefer to call it frugal. Um, <laughs> cheap. I know. Uh, frugal doesn't offend you. Like frugal I, I, is a badge of honor. Sure. Uh, you know, in being judicious with my expenditures is is a is a praiseworthy characteristic. Mm -hmm. I think. But the but there was a reason why I would do that. So early on in my business, I was I was pretty economical with my financial decisions, and people go, "Oh, you know, you're cheap. You don't ever spend any money." And it really kind of, um, uh, and I and I realized I came from that from my my dad who had gone through a bankruptcy and probably had some limited finances at different points in uh, my childhood but would always sort of hold back right and uh, I remember I got my my first car when I was like 16 got it for my birthday that's you know here's your car and I'm like oh that's great and he goes and by the way you don't have any more money in your Savings got. I'm like, so wait a minute. I bought this car. Because we, yeah, but you know, and I'm like, oh, oh, thanks. And so, and so what what happened is, and I think we all do this, is we see what our parents do, and we either emulate it or we reject it. Okay. And so I began to reject it. And when I started raising my kids, and I I think that at least for one of them, um. I made sure there was never a scarcity of money mindset, you know, and she was able to have whatever she wanted. And I, now that that time has passed, I look back and I think, oh, that, that probably wasn't great because I, I over-resourced <laughs> this person, right? I, they, and and they, they never sure. had to <laughs> struggle, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I want to go to this school. All right. You know, I want to drive this car. Okay. And, that was probably, and we'll, we'll see how it turns out, uh, as impactful and perhaps damaging as the opposite end of that experience, that, yeah, of that spectrum. Um, I see yeah, that a lot with pa yeah. Yeah. parents that uh, I had a client who several years ago, she divorced her husband. Um she made a healthy income, you know, but she made, let's say about $150,000 a year. Now her husband had made about $700,000 a year. So I don't exactly know what she walked away with at the end of that divorce when she was 50. I don't remember, but it was roughly speaking what a couple who make a million dollars a year would have accumulated by age 50. And she now has this amount of money and has retained the spending habits of yeah. someone who was 
making a million dollars a year, but she's not making a million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And she was barely had the amount of money that would allow her to continue that spending. Barely, barely. Mm-hmm. I said, if you, if we can change this and we can change that, you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And she kept one major $10,000 expense every single month. And I was like, finally, like, what are we doing? You're spending, you're pulling out $10,000 a month. What's going on? And she was sending money to her daughter who was going to uh, Columbia in New York City. And I said, okay, break down for me why your daughter needs $10,000 a month for allowance. She goes, well, rent is $8,000 a month. I'm like, (laughs) geez. I was like, all right, okay. Wow. And I... I started to become, I became a real estate agent in that meeting. I was like, well, for new apartments, what do we get? And it was so crazy, Emily, because nothing I could say would, would allow, she would not consider for a moment uh-huh. compromising on that $8,000 a month apartment that her daughter had. Uh-huh. Well, everything's that expensive. That's not true. Well, there's no, no. other safe neighborhoods. That's not true. Mm-hmm. She can't. She has to be close to school. There's. That's the best public transportation in the world is New York City. So that's not true. Like nothing was real, but she uh-huh. was convinced in her mind that she had to do that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I mean, in that kind of case, that's the clue that there is more under the surface, right? When things don't logically make sense and somebody is resistant or adamant about some financial decision there's something under there that needs to be explored for sure yeah it turns out she had grown up um very very poor and it Mm -hmm. it had an effect on her and she was like hey the last thing i want is for my daughter to feel what i felt yeah And, and yeah i see that a lot with people as we were talking i remember another client who worked a job he hated into his mid seventies, he could have retired in his early sixties. And I kept saying, and f- like, Hey, why don't you retire? Why don't you retire? You hate this job. I don't want to see you again. And here you complain about this stupid job that you hate that treats you poorly. And finally he blew up at me one day. I was like, dude, I grew up poor. <laughs> like I grew up and this is how it was. And this, and he started painting the image, this and that. And I said, I'll never do that again. Like, all right. <laughs> okay. I mean, and it wasn't logical. He had the money. So he was willing to pay the price of being right. on a job he hated just for the income? He he had the money to retire. He yeah. Could, it, but it was still like- It was never enough? He was just letting me like know, it's like, never dude, it's never going to be enough because yeah. I'm so afraid of that, that even, that any amount of risk that I face that again is too much risk for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Emily, it's heartbreaking. What questions are you asking people to, and I'm not trying to boil down a complete therapy relationship into, you know, three simple questions, but, but sort of, but what are you asking people that helps them discover that their money story is impacting how they're reacting today? Like, what, what are you asking people? Well, obviously that depends on the client, right? Um, So let's say for someone who I'm starting to catch an idea that they have a compulsive spending habit, 
right? And we're starting to notice that they're making a lot of excessive purchases. Maybe they're purchasing five of the same thing, right? Because yeah. it's on sale. And, you know, so they need five, not one. Trying to explore that with them. Oh, well, you got five. Tell me about, you know, Majin want to buy five. Well, it's a good deal. Well, that's great. It's a good deal. Um, but you decided not to just buy one. Yeah. Okay, well, help me explore that. Some Sometimes people have um, obsessive compulsive disorder. I will say mental health does play a piece um, in, in money too. So helping them understand what are you going for. A lot of times people are making emotional decisions, right? So buying five makes them feel safe, makes them feel secure. Well, what if I needed it? right? There's so much future fear. So we're really trying to get down to what is the core core feelings that are driving their decision to hoard or to spend or right. whatnot. So in general with people, um, a piece of this is actually building some self-trust as well, knowing that, hey, if something bad happens to you in the future? Can you trust that you'll be able to pivot or land on your feet? Are you scrappy enough? So ironically, we are trying to work on building self-trust. Um, it is important for people to know where their emotion is coming from around money, right? So what's their origins of their financial trauma? Like you were saying, Sean, people tend to either reenact or overcorrect. And so we are wanting to be very mindful that we are not reenacting or overcorrecting, which can put us into a different kind of pickle, um, decreasing shame around money. Uh, people need to be very mindful of their triggers as well. Uh, like you're saying, Sanger, you know, your, your poor client who's so anxious, she doesn't want her child to ever have to experience what she experienced, Real, helping her see you're safe. And your daughter's yeah. already safe, right? So mm -hmm. we don't want those emotions to drive the financial decisions. Um, some people do need mindfulness around their spending habits. Some people just don't know how money works. They need education. Um, so it depends on the person. Some I'm, people actually do need medication, yeah. right? Because they're, they're spending and they're accruing severe debt during manic periods so it is very interesting what different people need yeah and, and unfortunately well. i've had that experience usually are um well, i don't tend to work with a lot of people who are spending themselves into poverty i we, sure. we see a lot more underspending than overspending. i'm sure you do um, that does not surprise me yeah. but uh -huh. i've 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 experienced a lot of like i did have a client who is um very transparent with me about his mental health said, Hey man, I have manic episodes and I, well, for, I have no concept of money. I just spend like, I don't know what I'm, I don't even know what I'm doing or why I'm doing okay. it. And I spend, you know, $8,000 in three hours on Amazon buying crap. Well, well, okay. I'm now unable to help. <laughs> like this is outside of my realm of uh, expertise, but with other issues, when awareness is is something that they haven't achieved yet, I found a lot of success in highlighting for people what they didn't say when I asked them questions. And so I go, okay, um, 
tell me about like why it, what, you spent you spent money on this thing or you bought five of the thing instead of one of the thing. Why did you do that? Oh, well, because it was a good deal. Okay, tell me about that. Well, what do you mean? It's a good deal, obviously. Well, yeah, but you didn't say you were afraid you were going to run out. You didn't say so you could give them away to your friends and family. You said it was a good deal. And they're like, oh. So like what was obvious to them is now they they see that it's not the obvious answer or that everybody doesn't necessarily have that answer. And I think, I mean, we all have a tendency on some level to think the way I think is the way Emily's going to think and the way Sean's going to think. And we're all probably thinking the same thing. I mean, duh, this is the answer. And and. It's not. We may all have individual answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you noticed, you made a comment, Emily, about mental health. And I, and I think obviously there can be a correlation between someone with financial problems as a, as a result of mental health issues. Have, mm-hmm. you, have you ever seen it flip where the, the financial issues move into or cause mental health issues? Sure. Absolutely. Um and I do want to say there is a difference between having mental health symptoms that are provoked because of external circumstances versus, you know, someone is having trouble with their brain and it's going to sure. be a pervasive issue, right? So like for men, if they were to lose their job and they're the financial provider and now they're they're dwindling through their savings and they're having a hard time finding another job. The depression that just creeps in and the hopelessness, um, absolutely the anxiety that flares up and rightly so it's, it's very scary and it's hard. Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen a lot of clients over the years, kind of like you were talking about Sanger that, that particularly I think for men, because their, their self-worth is so connected to that employment and their income and, and their wealth, you know, ultimately, uh, mm-hmm. less so for, less so for women. But I, I think, you know, I've noticed that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely more so for men. They've been taught that their worth is wrapped up in what they earn. And I see often that men do feel compelled to stay in jobs where they are so unhappy and it's almost like their job is a prison sentence, but you know, they have to make their retirement or their wife wants to be able to spend X amount or, you know, I have to keep working because three more years to put little Bobby through school. And um, it is heartbreaking to see men feel so encumbered by the need to produce. Yeah. Uh, and alternatively, I, uh, my heart breaks for women who feel very helpless and powerless around money that, you know, I see women whose names are on nothing and don't, they don't have access to their, their accounts. They don't even have passwords for their credit card accounts or they're, you know, they're, they're being controlled and kept in the dark. Um, it's, it's, I heard a story of, this is like a friend of a friend of a friend, but just to talk about a woman who had a, a, horrible outcome with money is she was kept in the dark, did not know what her husband was spending money on. She was stay at home mom, not, names not on the accounts and names probably not on the house. Names, she doesn't know anything about anything. She thinks husband's mm-hmm. a successful 
business owner. Turns out he's $8 million in bad debt and their life just, I mean, just collapses in like a month. Boom. Now you don't have the house. You don't have the vacation. You don't have the image. Like everything that they had valued is now gone. And uh, it's a hole you're never going to get out of really. Yeah. You know, I I think there are, obviously there's differences between how, how men relate to, you know, employment income and wealth and how, how women do. And that, that probably drives the different opinions and attitudes towards money. When people come in to talk to you together, that they've got these different money stories. Historically, they've got different attitudes towards money, different connections Mm -hmm. to, uh, to that. How do you, how do you reconcile those differences when people are coming at it from such different places? It's challenging because often I will have couples that come in and, you know, this is mine. Well, this is mine. And there's either, you know, this power struggle over who gets to spend what or, you know, who has separate accounts and is there money hidden and a refusal to really become partners. And so, again, it's it's understanding, okay, money is just one way to see this couple's dynamic, right? The way that we talk about money actually is the same often as the conversations we'll have around sex or time spent or needs that are met. And I do think it's really important for couples to be on the same page with money. So when there's a resistance to actually having a teamwork mentality, um, that often has to be adjusted. Um, you can have women who've been told by their mother, you know, don't, you need to have a secret savings account because you never know what your husband's going to do. All men just leave. Yeah. So now you have this woman who has terror in her heart, like, I can't join my money because I'm going to be victimized. You can oh, have that's men. That's a real that thing. Been, yeah, it's, yeah. It is a real thing. Yeah, a it's real a real thing. thing. I've had clients yeah. who've shared that. You know, they're like, well, oh, uh-huh. I've got this over here. Now that, he doesn't know about that. Like, what? what? <laughs> yeah, that's my uh-huh. running away money. Yeah, what? Tries to kick okay. Me. Yeah. I didn't know. Hey, I, I hey, go back. Uh, you know. A friend of mine who is, um, you know, planning to get engaged soon, his uh, girlfriend, uh, soon-to-be fiance's parents just got divorced. And all of a sudden, now she's hearing that angle from her mom. Uh-huh. Hey, I, yeah. you never, you don't make the mistake I did. Always stay working. Keep your own money. And because yeah. this was a, you know, a stay at home uh, wife and mom who now is disadvantaged in the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, my heart breaks for that woman. She, she, she's dedicated her life to this man. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's disadvantaged herself economically, or at least as a, as a, as a laborer. And he cheats on her and leaves. Well, Yeah. Well, I don't blame her for having a hardline opinion about you should never quit working. Yeah, no wonder she's pissed. I don't right? yeah. either. Yeah, that didn't serve her well at all, and 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 that's really really sad. So yeah, yeah how do you reconcile? I don't know if you reconcile that issue, but how do you reconcile the differences from these points of view, these perspectives that that people have in any time? Maybe it's a business partnership relationship, which could, you know, it, or a marriage, or or something like that. Right. Is it as simple as, or starting as, just understanding that other person's money story, their background, sort of listening to, here's why they're making those types of decisions and being open and mm-hmm. 
vulnerable to, to share. Here's why I'm probably making those decisions. Maybe you don't even know why you make those decisions, but getting to that point okay. where you can. Sure. Ultimately, my goal is to try to pry the subject matter out of people's hands and help direct them towards the emotion, right? Why is this couple having a hard time connecting? What is stopping them from feeling safe from one another? What are the core needs that are missing in this relationship, right? Because we can sit and just fight about money all day, but we're not actually talking about money. We're talking about a couple's overall dynamic. Money is the pathway into that conversation. So hopefully, if we're trying to build the connection between the couple, yes, money, we're going to tidy that up as a result of cleaning up the relationship, so to speak. Um, what opinions do you have on couples who keep their money separate? Because when I see it, Emily, like you mentioned it earlier, oh, that's my money, that's his money. We, I, we highlighted one example of the, you know, the fear around merging money. But in my experience, I don't see it work out very well when people refuse to integrate their money. Mm -hmm. And typically that's what I tend to see as well. Um, that usually if, if there's a couple that refuses to integrate money and to have a very open mindset, um, everything is very transparent. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. Nobody has more value because you make 60,000 more than I do. It's all for the good of the unit. Um, typically, when people have a hard time integrating money, again, there is a sign that there is more going on. Um, and if if a woman does feel that she has a deep conviction that she wants to make sure that she has a, an amount of money that has her name on it, then I encourage her to speak very plainly with her husband about that. Hey, babe, I like I hope to never need this like an insurance policy, but just so you know, I have X amount of money in this account and my name alone is on it. And to be able to talk through that in general for couples, we want, again, the feeling of transparency, not secrecy. Secrets, secrets hurt. Yeah, when there's secrets, it's it, then there's always something that's not being said. And when you go to seek out professional help, whether it's from a financial advisor or a psychotherapist. Well, now we're coming to the table of secrets. We're really not going to get the help we need. It's like not telling my doctor about my, uh, you know, you, about my smoking habit. You ever had anybody keep a secret from you? Oh, sure. All like, the time. Yeah, people don't tell me about accounts that they have. People don't tell yeah. yeah, about spending or they tell me afterwards when there's nothing I can do. It's like they knew that I wasn't going to approve maybe. Um, but one thing that's interesting, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to interrupt, but there is sometimes when I am working with an individual and I can, we, you know, come to the conclusion it's a very abusive marriage that I will give the advice that they need to start hiding money away. I, I will, because most people, when it's an abusive relationship, you actually do need to plot your exit. And if somebody just willy-nilly says, that's it, I'm leaving, if we are dealing with an abusive partner, they will quickly lock their spouse out of all resources. Yeah, so yeah. 
I can I can see yeah. how that might make sense at the end of a relationship. I, I certainly yes. wouldn't go sure. into a relationship with yeah. that, with no. that mindset. One thing that no. I've noticed though is when I talk to couples that again I'm approaching it not as a therapist or a counselor. I say, hey, you know, I usually only say, have this conversation when they're starting the relationship or the marriage. My recommendation should integrate everything. You know. I don't want to tell someone who's 30 years into it. (laughs) Yeah. But when I do talk to people who are decades into it, I say, have you ever noticed any problems? Nobody ever. No, it's good. It's fine. It's all good. No, we know this is what works for us. And then a few years later, they get divorced and they start telling me about the fights that they were having about money that I never knew about. Like, yeah, that would have been solved by having integrated accounts. Yeah. Yeah, A lot of times we can't see what, the, co- the consequences of our own, um, you know, suboptimal plan or structure with our money. And, and that goes with anything in life. It's hard to see what the consequences are that we're living with. Yeah. Emily, what would you say is your, is your final decision-making tip for, for either people who are in business partnerships or marriages when it comes to how they relate to wealth and money? What, what would be your final decision-making tip for them? I would encourage people if they notice that they tend to avoid looking at some aspect of their finances that they need to be curious about what and why they are avoiding that particular decision or taking stock of what they have. Um, Avoidance is usually a clue that uh, there are some big feelings going on. So I understand that feels very broad. But anytime avoidance flares up, you know, we avoid or we procrastinate when there is a particular decision or subject matter that makes us maybe feel anxious or scared or decision fatigue. And so we will delay feeling that feeling by avoiding. So if there is an aspect of finances that someone finds they have a really hard sitting down to actually look at numbers or to budget or to have hard conversations, to just let themselves be curious. Yeah, good advice. That is good advice. Thank you so much for being here, Emily. Um, where can people find you and connect with the work that you're doing? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at emily.sanders.therapy. Uh, from there, you can get to my Threads account. I'm on Facebook as well. You can find me at um, emilyhsanders.com. So, yep. Perfect. Thanks so much. Thanks, Emily. It was great to talk Thank to you, you again. Thank you. My takeaway from our discussion with Emily came when we were talking about self-awareness and talking about how noticing your own behavior whether you are gravitating towards a certain behavior or rejecting it and avoiding a certain behavior is looking at it, having enough self-awareness to explore with curiosity, your own background story, whether it's a money story or, you know, some other reason why you're doing certain things and exploring the why. My takeaway was the last comment that she made is that if we have avoidance around a certain topic, that means we ought to be more curious about it. So avoidance is key. Being aware of when we're avoiding is key. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. 
Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.